Joining us is Professor Ben what Burgess. A, what a nice cuck. But <laughs> as far as cucks go, an open relationship. Now, you're a philosophy professor. By the way, let me give you a proper introduction. Professor Ben Burgess is the host of Give Them an Argument, which tapes every Saturday. And if you'd like to sit in on a recording session of Give Them an Argument, follow Professor Ben Burgess over at Twitter or sign up for his Patreon account. Go to patreon.com forward slash Ben Burgess and you'll gain access to his essays and you can also read them over at Jacobin. We're going to talk about a very sweet serious piece that you wrote about our friend Michael Brooks over at Jacobin. I think it's the, the Gospels are starting. Yeah. <laughs> this is like, we're, this is the Gospels according, the Book of Ben, where we yeah, talk yeah. about what Michael Brooks was really saying. But you a, know what? Maybe, maybe. Maybe. A little bit like that, maybe a little bit like um, some uh, rapper who continues to have 10 years of posthumous material. A cosmopolitan uh, socialism. The cosmopolitan socialism of Michael Brooks. It's over yeah. Jacobin. Yeah, today and, today would have been uh, his 37th birthday. Um, so uh, seemed like a good time to do this. I've uh, been kind of talking to Bhaskar about that, that last piece of writing that he did Um that Michael did and like what form we could, you know, cause it was like very unedited and nobody was really comfortable trying to do posthumous editing, you know? So like what form we could present some of his thoughts from there. Uh, this is kind of what we came up with. I will also say, by the way, it's funny that you just mentioned deflate gate since the, um, the very first article I ever wrote for Jacobin was actually about deflate gate. Really? Uh, it was, yeah, uh, because I was on the Michael Brooks show with, um, uh, with Bhaskar, uh, we were both on at the same time. Uh, and, you know, this was in studio back when you could still do that. Um, and in between the main show and the post game, you know, we were, um, you know, we, we were sitting there and, and chatting, you know, convivially, right? You know, I'll, I'll spill trade secrets here and say that the uh, coffee cups didn't just have coffee in them. And, and milk uh, as well. You took, you took, yes. you took with milk. That's right. Uh, and and um, and we were, you know, talking about uh, football. Uh, and and I, I said, like, just as a kind of throwaway joke, I actually think there's like an interesting parallel between Lava Jato, right? The process by which the, um, the Lula was framed up in Brazil and uh, Deflategate. Uh, and um, and Bhaskar said, well, that sounds like an article for me like, to me. You should write that. So I did. Um, so your 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 gig over at Jacobin comes to us came to us, came via Michael Brooks. Oh yeah, very directly. Yep. Wow. So how how long have you been writing for Jacobin? Um, since um, since last summer. So it's it's been a little over a year, I guess. They really there. are the best. I mean, yeah. they, it's yeah. like, I, I have this, because of my age, my, my first instinct is to go to the Times or the Washington Post. Yeah. But Jacobin is, 
uh, quickly becoming the first place I go to, the cosmopolitan socialism of Michael Brooks. Let's go over mm-hmm. some let's yeah. go over some words first. What does identitarianism mean? And where yeah. do you stand on it? And it apparently both the right and the left suffer from it. Yeah. Um, so identitarianism or identity politics, you know, I guess maybe it's a more familiar word for that, um, is is roughly uh, the the view that we should primarily like see the world politically through these categories through these identity categories right being um you know black or white a man or a woman gay or straight you know trans or cis you know what have you um and what this uh at at its in the worst versions of this uh what it leads to uh, is what Oliver Traldi, uh, I, I've seen calls the, the like guild hall, uh, version of the left where, uh, what he means by that metaphor is that it's, it's almost like you have, um, like the guild of, you know, gay people pushing for, uh, you know, you know, like, like, like pushing for, representation attention to certain issues whatever and the competing guild of you know black women you know pushing for that and you know and etc and oftentimes seen as this kind of zero-sum game uh, to um you know for uh for attention you know and um and and the view is like that there are and I think the really essential difference here, this could be a little bit roundabout, but that's okay. For it's a second, great. Right. You know, uh, I think the essential difference there between that and um, some of what Michael was pushing when we talked about cosmopolitan socialism, some of what his uh, mentor at all you know, who's probably the most influential person on him in the last year of his life. Who's a black Marxist, you know, academic, um, you know, some of what Michael and Adolf, you know, were concerned about. The most essential difference between that sort of guild hall identity politics conception of the left and this other is not that one of them says that we should like care about discrimination against gay people, for example, and the other one doesn't. Right? That's not it. Like everybody agrees on that. Uh, that anything that's a question of uh, you know, civic or legal equality, whether that be like expanding anti-discrimination ordinances to, you know, to cover gay and trans people, or whether that be trying to come up with some solution to uh, racial bias and law enforcement. Uh, you know, those are questions of civic equality, and, and that's absolutely essential, both on its own terms and as a foundation for working class solidarity. Everybody agrees on that. The disagreement is that on this identitarian way of thinking about these struggles, that there are essentially all of these distinct factors. There's class, sure, but there's also race, gender, sexual orientation, et cetera, that are all kind of on the same level. They're all kind of of the same kind. And they're, they intersect in different ways, right? That's what people mean when they talk about intersectionalism, that there are complicated, messy relationships between them. But basically, these are separate tracks. Uh, and to see why somebody like Adolf Reed or somebody like Michael, and especially in his last year when he was very influenced by Reed, uh, thought that that was a, 
well, I guess so there are two really two things, right, in terms of the critique of identity politics. One is respects in which it's just like analytically not accurate, right? It's not the right way to think about this stuff. And the second is why maybe that's not politically helpful. So um, as far as why uh, it, it's not necessarily accurate, right, like that uh, there is this fundamental difference between uh, class and those other categories, uh, which is that identity categories are about how you see yourself and also how others see you and therefore how they might mistreat you or malign you because they see you that way. Uh, that um, you have a different skin color and people have racist attitudes and they think you're inferior because you have this different skin color, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, although that's also a, a good one to think about because like in the Jim Crow era, right, there, there were... There were uh, light-skinned black people who are sometimes able to escape some of those effects by passing for white. Because again, it's about how, it's about perception, right? Are you perceived as being different in this way by yourself or by others? And therefore, how are you treated? Whereas economic class really isn't like that. Uh, it's not about how you perceive yourself or about how others perceive you. Uh, it's not really about what thoughts are in anybody's head, right? It's, it's about uh, It's about your objective relationship to an economic structure. Right. So whether you think of yourself as a worker or even whether your boss necessarily thinks of you in those terms, you know, you know, maybe your boss is being really sincere when he throws around terms like associate. Right. And uh, maybe you think like many academics do, for example, oh, I'm not a worker. You know, I'm a professional. Right. You have this other identity mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't actually change the nature of the relationship. Maybe it changes your ability to do anything about it because you're less likely to form a union, uh, but it, it doesn't change the relationship itself. So that's the first thing that there really is a, there really is an important difference between these two concepts. And then as far as the political dimension, well, actually, so so one way to do this right uh, is just to think like some people might listen to what I just said right and say, well, hold on, Ben, you're you're missing something important because when we talk about racism, for example. Uh, given the centrality of racism to American history, that's probably like a good single example to focus on. When you talk about racism, for example, uh, you're just talking about racial bias, but that's not necessarily what we mean by racism, right? You know, what we mean by racism is something structural. People throw around these terms like systemic racism or structural racism all the time. And But then if I think if you maybe like dig a little deeper under the surface of that, they mean, when they talk about structural racism, they mean a couple different things that, that come apart, right, in important ways, right? So one thing that they mean is just people in positions of power being influenced by racial bias and therefore, like, exercising power in racially biased ways. And God knows that happens all the time, right? Like, one of my favorite examples, you know, favorite makes it sound like I think it's a good thing, right? You know, mm-hmm. but one of the clearest examples that you can give of this, right? Uh, it's despicable, you know, is uh, there are studies showing that not only are there racial disparities in traffic stops, uh, but that those disparities decline after sunset, right? That's for, because uh, it's the cop has a harder time seeing who's in the car. Wow. Yep. Uh, so that's like a pretty clear example of structural racism in that sense of, of, of people in positions of power making racially biased decisions right. ex- in how they exercise their power. But then uh, the other thing I think people often mean, uh, and this is what like Adolf Reed is criticizing when, when he talks about disparity ideology, is just anything that's like anything that's a, a racial disparity that has some kind of systematic or structural origins. So uh, the most obvious example 
uh, would be uh, the um, the economic disparities between white people and black people in the United States, uh, which, by the way, is the source not of everything, right? I'm under no illusions that if we got rid of capitalism, that like all racial bias would disappear the next day or whatever, right? Like I, I think, um, you know, I mean, I think like clearly, right? We've long since passed the point historically where most Jewish people in the U.S. are poor immigrants, but anti-Semitism has not, you know, ceased to exist, right? You know, so um, so I don't think racism would disappear in a socialist society. Um, in fact, I think that. If you think about a society where, like, the, maybe the dominant private sector form of organization was a worker co-op, I think it would actually be incredibly important to have, uh, like, some equivalent of an equal opportunity employment commission to stop people from, like, communally discriminating in, like, who they invited to join their, you know, cooperative. Uh, but um, I do think um, that most of what people are talking about when they talk about structural racism to the extent that they're talking about anything that goes beyond just people in positions of power having racial biases and acting on that basis is actually economic, right? That like, so for example, uh, even though there clearly is racial bias in policing, and that's obviously a huge problem in terms of civic equality, uh, the main reason that, for example, more black people than white people are killed by the police isn't because of that. That's a reason. It's not the main reason. The main reason more black people than white people are killed by police is that this kind of aggressive militarized policing is primarily a problem in poor neighborhoods. Uh, and due to the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and FHA red line and all those things, black people are much more likely than white people to live in poor neighborhoods. Uh, so the main thing is economic. And that, I think, is actually where this kind of intersectional guild hall sort of view of left politics becomes the least helpful politically, because if you're thinking of these as separate issues, right, there's, okay, there's this there's economic class, which is maybe an issue for most people, right, and then there's all this other stuff, which is a separate racial issue, and maybe they intersect, but these are basically different things, then that leads you to different political solutions than if you say, well, no, the basic problem here is poverty. Now, it's also a historical fact that we should be real about um, that, of course, uh, there is, you know, due to the racist history of the United States, there's this wildly unequal distribution of poverty. But of course, we wouldn't think it was justice if we just achieved it totally. There were like exactly the right portion of white people and black people living in miserable poverty and like exactly the right proportional number of white people and black people were being murdered by the police. You know, like that, that's that's there's something very strange about thinking that's our vision of of surpassing this problem right mm -hmm. really what we need uh is to is to do something about the poverty right you know so so i think if you think about it as like a racial issue rather than an economic issue i think you're going to come to really the wrong political conclusions and i think that's the most important part of the critique of identitarianism but i will also say maybe in terms of feeding into other aspects of the article you might want to get into that um that some of Michael's concern about identitarianism that he expresses in his book, he expresses in that Mill um, that Mill series lecture that that I played a clip of in the in the show the right. first show on Saturday, uh, and that he expresses in that last those last book notes right that that um, that I was quoting in the article is also about its tie into this kind of counterproductive moralism right that um, so which I think. 
is like a huge problem on the left right now. We could talk about in lots of different ways. I think a pretty obvious example is like the Alex Morsi sex non-scandal, you know, that just played out. The mayor of Holyoke? Yeah, yeah, who was, um, who was accused... Uh, like, like it, it turned out to be even more ridiculous than it sounded, right? You know, but he's an adjunct professor, which is the, which, by the way, anybody who thinks that who wants to talk about power differentials has a hilariously inflated idea of what kind of power is exercised by an adjunct professor, right. you know, who's who's a, like essentially that's like the uber version of being an academic. Uh, but as an adjunct professor, I wonder what's worse: getting raided by your students or getting raided on Tinder. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Or grinder uh, in this case. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he, um, yeah, so he was a single gay man living in this, uh, in Amherst, I guess, who's teaching, or Holyoke, right, he's mayor of Holyoke. In any case, uh, and nobody has accused him of doing anything that wasn't consensual. Nobody has even accused him of sleeping with any student who was in his class. Um, but by having he, sex, it was, there was a power dynamic at play. Yeah, he was exploiting it, his intellectual dominance over unsuspecting yeah, yeah. younger men. Yeah, even though they, even though nobody was a student in his class, he was in his late twenties. I guess they were in their early twenties, uh, and they don't have and, their own agency. Uh, yeah, a, yeah. a man right, right, in his mid twenties has no control yeah. over his yeah, ability. As, as to, as, yeah, as Matt Taibbi put in his article about this on his Substack, apparently college students in their twenties uh, are like children or Saint Bernards. You know, they can't give consent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, right. and it turned out to be even more ridiculous than it sounded. Like it, it ultimately came out that this was like a Planned. weird attempt, attempt at a sting yeah. by some like weird dweeby college Democrat who wanted to intern for his for Morsi's opponent. Neil, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so, but I think the fact that, so obviously this was like a, an attempt, um, you know, this was like a dirty trick attempt, but also I think the fact that so many leftists initially fell for it, uh, I think says something because, you know, the, I think the reaction that we should have to that is, wait a second, what, what are you talking about? Go away. Right. You know, like, right. like, like, like it's, it's a, it's a nothing, right. You know, like it's, but the fact that, there is this sort of extreme attention that's put on parts of the left right now to, instead of doing what we should be doing as leftists, which is focusing on systems and structures, uh, to like morally evaluating the character of individuals and putting all the stress on that. Uh, that's why we're open to that kind of thing. And so when Michael's talking about a, you know this, this kind of uh, woke identitarianism and how it can go wrong, uh, that's also linked to what he's talking about, right? So the example he gives in the part of his book, I quote in the article, uh, is about people thinking that, like, if you're a member of certain cultural groups uh, and you're adopting some cultural practice of some other group, then, like, you're you're committing the sin of cultural appropriation. Uh, and uh, which, again, goes to this kind of essentialist view about culture, that there's this almost magical connection between, like, you know, you as a, you know, like because of your Jewishness, you know, you have a, I don't know, you know, you have a right to, uh, to, to, you know, to eat bagels that, uh, that say it's uh, drafty. Yeah, yeah, say it's, it's drafty. very drafty in here. That's right. That's right. Uh, whereas if some Italian person were to eat bagels and say it's very drafty in here, you know, they would be, they would be doing the cultural appropriation. Yes. 
uh, and this is a little bit of a caricature, but honestly, not much, right? Like that's, that's you know, it's not too far off right. uh, from some things I've actually seen people say very earnestly, right? And of course, when so when Michael talks about cosmopolitan socialism, right? There are two components there. This is cosmopolitanism and this is the socialism. Uh, and and his view is that they they work together, that the cosmopolitanism is more fully realized if you have a more economically equal society. But the cosmopolitan component is just rather than kind of having this sort of extreme essentialist kind of woke moralism on the one hand or on the other hand being like a bigot, right? You know, that uh, right. that would also be bad. Um, that, um, you know, that there's a... Uh, that there's a cultural, you know, third way here, which which is just kind of like, look, we we want a society where everybody is like living together the way they do in cities, right? That's the cosmopolitan part, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and interacting with each other and intermarrying with each other and sort of naturally blending cultures in the way that it happens in that situation. That cultural exchange and syncretism is a good thing, right? You know that um, that that we that we want that, right? You know, there's there's something very strange about the idea that like the ideal woke thing to do would be for white people to only, I don't know, listen to music made by white people and eat food from white people. And like, eventually this, this sort of, this sort of comes to a locally true version of horseshoe theory, you know, like this, this sort of starts, starts to sound a little bit like what Richard Spencer wants you to do. Um, but that of course, I guess the last component of, of the equation here is the socialism part of cosmopolitan socialism. Um, because it's all very well, because so far a lot of what I've said about Cosmopolitan and all this, like a certain kind of like libertarian might not along with, right? Say this all sounds right, right? That this is what we should want. You know, we should want people, you know, sort of freely intermingling and, you know, picking up each other's cultural practices and not being too constrained, you know, by any idea of, you know, lost to what, and, you know, they could just live their lives however they want to, right? Like the, classical liberal philosopher john stuart mill talked about experiments and living right you know you shouldn't be constrained you should like you know try to like live your life in whatever way makes sense to you without anybody else telling you you know how you should do it okay beautiful here's the problem that in the society we actually live in um there are some pretty severe constraints on most people's ability to experiment uh because most people spend so much of their time uh, just worried about how to pay the bills. And, you know, it's it's great to say, look, if you want to be in like a, a really like traditional Christian nuclear family, go do that. If you want to, you know, live in a polyamorous Wiccan commune, do that. Okay, that's nice. But then, of course, in the real world, most people, um, you know, so many people uh, either stay in terrible or even abusive relationships because they can't, uh, they're not in a financial position to strike out on their own. They're worried about losing their house, their spousal health care. Uh, or conversely, uh, they would love to, to um, hold together, you know, a good relationship, but it's hard because financial stress and anxiety makes it hard to hold together a relationship. And because, you know, people who have to do things like move around, you know, for, for work, you know, it's, it makes it harder to hold together a relationship. So in a more economically equal society, we could, um, we could be much more meaningfully free to actually, uh, experiment with living however we want to. Right. Well, uh, that was great. I, I, 
wanted to ask you more questions, but we have to wrap it up. Two quick questions. Thank you, Dr. Ben Burgess, host of Give Them an Argument. You're welcome. uh, Uh, Saturday. Host of the David Feldman Show. How do we listen to your new podcast? Yep. Yep. Uh, So... um, uh, so the recording is in the exact same format uh, as as this one, um, but with much less endurance, uh, and uh, that's uh, from uh, from four to six on Saturday afternoons. Uh, if you look at my Twitter or my Patreon uh, on Friday, you should get a, a a link for anybody who wants to sit in on that. Right. Uh, then um, it uh, after. Um, you know, Forrest, who, who also does video editing for TMBS and Jacobin, uh, does his thing. It goes up on YouTube. That should premiere on uh, 7.30 uh, Monday night. Um, and after you, for as long as I can continue to exploit you in this way, uh, you know, do the equivalent for the audio. Uh, it goes out as a uh, podcast on Monday mornings and it took a couple days, but that's available on all the usual places, iTunes, Google podcasts, all that stuff. Fantastic. And read professor Ben Burgess's piece about our friend, Michael over Jacobin where Dr. Burgess is a columnist. His latest is the cosmopolitan socialism of Michael Brooks. Thank you. I will talk to you later today about tomorrow. Thank you.